0: Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's Analysis Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is on the new labour codes passed by Parliament earlier in the week on social security, industrial relations and occupational safety that incorporate or subsume 25 central labour laws. So, along with the wage code that was passed in 2019, The NDA government has now merged 29 different labour laws into 4 codes. And this is something that was badly needed, because India's labour laws are famously complicated and jumbled, and the demand for bringing in more clarity is a long-standing one. On the other hand, what changes to the existing laws do these codes bring in, and what are the implications? Among the key changes are that they provide employers more flexibility in hiring and firing workers. They bring in some provisions for expanding the social security net to informal workers, though not completely. They recognize new categories of workers such as gig workers and platform workers. And they in some way also reduce the influence of trade unions. So many of these changes are far-reaching. And while the new codes are very long and detailed, we'll try and keep our discussion today to points that are easily relatable. My guest today is Roshni Sinha. She is a Senior Analyst at PRS Legislative Research. And just a short note before we start. A lot has happened during the Parliament session that just concluded. On our podcast, we've covered the amendments to the FCRA Bill in an episode we put out earlier in the week, which you can check out on our playlist. The other big issue, of course, is the Agriculture Bills passed by the government, which are proving to be so controversial. We covered that topic on another podcast we do called Parley where we get two experts to discuss and deliberate. So please check out the Pali podcast as well on the Hindu website, or you can find it on the same platforms on which you're listening to this podcast. And here's Roshni Sinha on the new labor codes. Roshni Sinha, thank you for joining us on the InFocus podcast today, and thank you for making time for us.
1: Thanks, Jen.
0: Right, so let's start first with the context around which these labor codes were introduced. Uh, So it's fairly well known that the laws concerning labor in India, uh, there are many of them, many of them were introduced over the years piecemeal, so it's quite a jumble. And so this is a positive move in one sense that it's long been a necessity to get some clarity around our labor laws and sort of consolidate them into more easily understandable codes, easily accessible codes. So let's get an idea of that. Um, How many laws on labor are there at the state and central level? And what do these codes try and achieve by way of consolidation?
1: Sure. Sure. So you know, Gent, as um, as you pointed out, uh, labour is fairly complex, and the issues around it have been discussed, uh, you know, ad nauseum. But uh, just to summarise, you know, labour is a is a subject that falls under the concurrent list of the Constitution, and what that essentially means is that both at the centre as well as at the state level, the legislatures can make laws to regulate labour. Uh, Now, going by this metric, there are currently over 40 central laws and over 100 state laws that regulate various aspects of labor. And uh, if we were to bucket them broadly, these would cover the question of wages, uh, resolution of industrial disputes, uh, working conditions, and provision of social security. Now, if you uh, just look at this exercise, uh, there was an expert body that was constituted in 2002. It was called the Second National Commission on Labor. Uh, they undertook this massive exercise of reviewing all central and you know state-level labor laws. What they found was that existing legislation is fairly complex. Many of our labor laws you know, date back to pre-independence times. Take the example of the Trade Unions Act, which dates back to 1926. And because of the sheer multiplicity of laws, there is a complexity in terms of compliances under each law there are varying definitions of the same labor variable. So, for example, wages is something that's common across the laws on wages, across the laws on social security, laws on industrial relations. But many of these laws have different definitions of wages. Similarly, many of these laws have different definitions of who is a worker or who is an employer and what is an establishment. So the uh, Second National Commission Labor's thinking on this was to improve ease of compliance and to ensure this sort of uniformity in labor laws, you need to consolidate existing central labor laws into broader groups of industrial relations, wages, social security, and occupational safety. Now, this exercise therefore has been on since 2015, where the government has, uh, you know, sort of been trying to undertake labor reform, and it has put out uh, its, uh, you know, legislative drafts on each of these laws that replace several central laws. Uh, finally you had since 2017 you had the government introduced the code on wages which replaced four wage laws including the bonus act and then in 2019 you had the remaining two codes which each replaced roughly seven to eight laws totaling 25 central laws so just a couple of days back is when the government finally passed all of these labor laws so that's where we are at if you just look at the Three labor laws that were last passed, they span 257 pages, 411 clauses, and they have 13 schedules and replace 25 central labor laws. So that's where we are at in terms of, you know, the complexity of labor laws today.
0: Right. So you mentioned 25 labor laws uh, with these codes uh, plus four, which were consolidated earlier uh, with the wages code. So um, so that... So before we proceed, I think you mentioned the number at the beginning was forty central labor laws. So in total, uh, that still leaves out eleven. So what are those eleven that were that uh, you know the government didn't manage to bring into these codes?
1: The fair question. So you know we were trying to do this check, and our understanding is a lot of these laws were the ones that set up labor welfare funds. So labor welfare funds are essentially cess-based funds, largely that are meant for certain classes of workers like, you know, cine workers or limestone workers, a specific category of mines, uh, you know, people who work there. Now, what happened was with the rollout of GST, a lot of these laws were um, actually repealed and the labor welfare funds were abolished. So several of, of these laws that you see in those 40 laws set up those labor welfare funds and provided for the imposition of CES based on which contributions would be put back into that labor welfare fund for the benefit of certain categories of workers. So with the GST coming in, those laws have now gone. And perhaps that's where you see the mismatch between the 40 central laws that the government has put out and the 29 central laws. Now, of course, there are many other central laws that continue to exist, like your child labor regulation, manual scavenging laws, Apprentices Act. Um, There's no clear indication of what this exact set of 40 is. But we know that there are some labor laws that, you know, continue to exist, while a lot of other labor welfare fund laws have now been
0: repealed. Right. So let's just move on to a couple of big themes now. So one thing I think that people are mostly familiar with when we're talking about labor laws is that it, it becomes an exercise in balancing out two key factors. Um, so PRS has a very readable note on this, which we'll try and link to along with this podcast. But just to read a line from that, um, it's that. Firms should find it easy to adapt to changing business environment and to be able to change their output and employment levels accordingly. At the same time, workers need protection in terms of minimum wages, social security, job security, health and safety standards. So you know that's the that's the basic conflict. you have to balance one with the other. so in terms of, when we're talking about these labor codes, um, how do how do each of them kind of achieve uh, this balance? Do they achieve this balance, firstly?
1: Sure. So, you know, like you pointed out, uh, some of the challenges that even uh, the expert committee that we were referring to earlier, the National Commission on Labour, uh, they took into account the fact that there is a certain amount of uh, inflexibility that current labour laws have. And that is on account of, you know, like you said, both the requirement of a prior permission before you can close or you know, dismiss workers, as well as a high compliance burden, because there are multiple laws and that results in, of course, multiple layers of compliances in terms of inspections, maintenance of registers and filing of returns. Uh, So what this code does is it tries to address some of these aspects that, you know, firms may uh, face in terms of streamlining compliances, and uh, trying to deal with the question of thresholds to some extent. Uh, But on the other hand, I think it's also important to point out that while that's one angle of uh, aspect of the debate, the other is also that, you know, over the last uh, couple of decades, one has seen the rise in uh, the numbers of contract labor that have been employed. And of course, contract labor is a type of atypical work arrangement because they're not your regular permanent workmen in the force. They come in through a third party agency. Uh, So, one of the questions, of course, is with this fear of, you know, uh, the inability to respond to growing production demands or any spurt in your manufacturing cycle, um, industries have increasingly resorted to, you know, hiring contract labor to fulfill those short-term requirements. Uh, And that has come at its own cost of increasing some level of precarity for contract labor. And there have been studies, including by the CAG, you know, which has pointed out that, um, Contract labor has not been able to see its rights being enforced to the same extent as that of permanent workmen when it comes to you know basic benefits such as wage entitlements and you know social security benefits or even work conditions and labor enforcement. While on the one hand there has been you know that sort of rent seeking behavior by the inspector system and there have been claims there, there's also the allegation that you know perhaps labor enforcement has then we cannot protect the rights of workers to its fullest extent to ensure that they get their rights to these basic benefits. And um, collective bargaining rights have also been impacted because trade unions today don't have the ability to be recognized, um, you know, to formally negotiate with the management. So these are the various aspects that the codes are looking at. And perhaps we can get into a discussion of the specifics and the way they try to deal with some of these questions.
0: Right. Yeah. So let's just start first with this with this issue of retrenchment. So it used to be that establishments hiring 100 or more workers needed government permission for closure or layoffs. Now, this is actually perhaps the most common complaint that you get in, in, with people who are in manufacturing who say that, okay, supposing I get an order for manufacturing something um, and say I hire 150 workers and then that contract uh, for some reason uh, expires um, and then I want to move on to do something else. But then you're stuck with this uh, with this with this workforce that you can't easily just you know lay off or um, you know you can't close down operations and then move on to something else easily. So um, so how is how is how is this issue addressed?
1: Okay, so um, you know, like you pointed out, so the current regulation, which is the Industrial Disputes Act, and this is being uh, uh, subsumed in the Industrial Relations Code. What that uh, the existing 1947 law says is that. If you are going to, uh, if you're an establishment with 100 or more workers and you plan on closing or laying off or retrenching your workers, then you need to get prior permission for any of these activities, along with then the notice and compensation requirements. Uh, Any change to that threshold downward or upwards would need the ratification of the state legislature. So, for example, you've seen states move in this direction, uh, you know, like uh, you have Rajasthan, for example as one of the states that has moved in the direction of increasing this threshold right um, so it has increased the threshold from 100 to 300 workers for example now what this code is doing is one it increases the threshold from 100 to 300 in the central law that's one second rather than having this amendment any changes or modifications to this threshold by the respective state legislature what it says is that this uh, number can now only be modified by the government and Second, it can only be modified in an upward direction, which means that the modification can only be for three hundred or over right so that those are a couple of the key changes that have been brought about and Here, I think what's worthwhile to point out is that even when the standing committee was looking at the earlier version of this law, uh, the earlier version actually left it at hundred and it and it said that you, you know the government can change that limit by uh, notification. So, the standing committee said that, you know, looking at the way that states have progressed to deal with this question that you pointed out, uh, the government could consider modifying this threshold to 300. But they did, uh, you know, issue a word of caution on the exercise of uh, delegated legislation here. And they said, you know, perhaps the ability to change this threshold should not lie with the government. And perhaps the ability to change this threshold should lie with the respective state legislature, which in its wisdom can choose when to change it. So, that's why... The questions of flexibility that comes in here, to what extent you would want, you know, this power to change it, to, you know, stay with the government and to what extent would you want the respective legislature to think about this decision and then decide whether to, you know, change this threshold upwards or uh, otherwise.
0: Right. So just, you know, addressing that question from the other end. So supposing a firm stays very small, uh, then under existing laws, you know, in some cases, basic protections related to wages, to social security, working conditions, they don't apply. So there is that issue of coverage that we're talking about. And uh, how is that addressed uh, in these new labor codes?
1: Sure. So uh, largely the question of coverage remains more or less similar. on, wages, of course, has been expanded to all establishments. That's one change. Uh, When it comes to, you know, uh, your occupational safety laws. Now, occupational safety code is replacing some very, uh, you know, key legislation like a factories act and your Contract Labour Regulation Act. Now, if you look at these laws, these laws have traditionally always had thresholds. So for example, the Factories Act always applied to factories that had 10 or 20 workers based on the use of electricity. And Contract Labour Regulation Act, again, applied over a threshold. So it said that if you are a contractor or employer with fifty with sorry 20 or more contract workers, then this law applies. So those size-based thresholds have been in place today and they continue now in this new Occupational Safety Code that replaces these laws. So the o- occupation Safety Code applies to all establishments that have at least 10 workers. And then it sort of has special provisions for certain categories of workers, like those who work in factories or those you know, who are contract labor or those who work in mines. And it has different thresholds for each of these special industries. But those thresholds more or less are the same as in this law. Now, what has happened is in this new version of the uh, Occupational Safety Code, they have actually increased the threshold for contract labor and factories. So like I said, earlier factories are applied to factories employing 10 or 20 based on electricity and contract labor for 20, right? This has been changed for factories from uh, 10 to 20 to 20 to 40. So 20 to 40 based on whether you use electricity and the contract labor regulation now applies to those employing 50 or more contract labor. So now the question that really comes in, and you know, similar is the case with the Social Security Code, which also replaces several laws such as your Provident Fund Act, the State Insurance ESI Act. Those also continue to retain size-based thresholds of typically ten or twenty workers. Now the question that we need to ask is: when you're looking at coverage of workers, are we looking at coverage? You know, uh, from the perspective of uh, whether we are looking to make sure that you know industries have the ability to. Uh, you know, operate and, uh, you know, stay low on compliances? Or are we looking at basic occupational safety and health as a working right of all employees? Uh, So it really depends on how we are viewing it. So when you look at how the standing committee viewed it, they were uh, fairly clear that, you know, when it comes to this occupational safety law, you need to have special provisions for unorganized workers for the entire informal sector. And all these establishments that have less than 10 workers to take care of their basic health and safety requirements. But what the new code does is to actually increase the thresholds for factories and increase the threshold for contract labor. While saying that, you know, if there's any specific hazardous establishment, then the government can think about covering them as well, even if they are very small.
0: Right. So, so what you're saying is that there are no specific rules laid down for this right now, but these are all sub- subjects that can be legislated upon in the future.
1: Correct. So this is something that, you know, now the code is more or less hard coding and states will have to take a call on whether they want to, you know, move these thresholds upwards or downwards. But for now, the newly passed law has increased the thresholds, uh, size-based thresholds for factories and for contract labor and continues to retain thresholds for social security establishments. And what that means is, of course, that a larger number of people may turn out to be excluded from coverage of these laws.
0: Right. So this issue of basic social security, I think, is an issue that uh, many of us became acutely aware of during the lockdown when we saw uh, millions of migrant laborers uh, taking that long walk back to their uh, home villages or hometowns. Um, and it, it, it kind of acutely brought home the fact that many of them enjoy almost no kind of social security or economic security in the places that they work. Um, this, uh, these codes introduced as they are after after so many people have witnessed what happened during the lockdown. Does it address the plight of migrant laborers? Do they address the plight of migrant laborers in any way?
1: Yeah. You know, so interestingly, uh, the Standing Committee, the Parliamentary Committee on Labor, was actually looking at the Social Security Code post-COVID. And, uh, you know, they actually, there's a recording of a discussion where basically the ministry, you know, talked about the fact that in the wake of COVID, one of the issues that emerged is, of course, the conditions of migrant workers, when you're looking at food and ration entitlements, retention in jobs, portability of benefits, etc. right? So one of the things that the um, Occupational Safety Code is actually trying to do, it creates a separate chapter for migrant workers. And what it does there is it basically provides for a couple of things. One, it says that uh, migrant workers will have the option now to avail benefits of the PDS system, either in their native state or the state of employment. And, um, you know, also because a lot of migrant workers are construction workers, another provision that has been included is that if you're a construction worker who's a migrant worker, then any of the benefits under the building and construction says that will also be portable. So it will be available to you in your new state of employment as well. And other than that, it uh, tries to create a portal where uh, migrant workers can, you know, register themselves uh, through Self declaration and Aadhaar. So it tries to create some provisions to expand the uh, you know sort of benefits available to migrant workers, and it tries to also definitionally expand their coverage. So, for example, migrant workers are not only those people now who are employed through contractors; it can also be people who are directly employed by employers, or you know, come from uh, are self-employed people who come from another state. So, those are some of the changes in terms of portability of benefits, access to food and ration, as well as registration that the code uh, seeks to bring in.
0: So the code also now has some provisions on gig workers and platform workers, which is, you know, much needed um, because all modern economies work with a large proportion of such workers. Um, What are these provisions? Are they clear enough?
1: So um, there actually there have been several changes, smaller changes that have been made to the provisions on gig workers. Uh, So essentially what is happening is, you know, under this new social security law, Uh, There are some mandatory provisions for companies or establishments over a certain size. So, for example, your provident fund, you know, maternity benefit, gratuity, etc. Continue to apply if you're an establishment of a certain size. But the government has uh, tried to say that there will be discretionary schemes for certain other categories of workers. Now, who are these categories of workers? These are informal sector workers, your unorganized sector workers and these are also these new forms of uh, you know of work that you talked about gig work and uh, platform work now essentially what the earlier version of the code did was to just say that you know there will be schemes for them uh, and there wasn't much clarity in terms of who will fund these schemes you know uh, how exactly do you define a gig worker or a platform worker the definitions also had certain issues now what this new code does it basically um, sort of tries to uh, you know define the role that an aggregator could play in these schemes. So what it one it does is that it says that there will be separate social security funds that will be set up for unorganized workers, gig workers, and platform workers. And second, what it does, it says that the schemes for these gig workers and platform workers can be funded through a combination of contributions from central government, state government, and aggregators. And it then lists out a set of aggregators that this refers to. And this is a list of nine categories of aggregators. This includes, you know, your ride-sharing services, which would probably include your Ubers and Olas, food and grocery delivery services, and e-marketplaces. It also sort of caps the amount of contribution that an aggregator can be expected to make. So it says that the contribution from an aggregator will be anywhere between 1% to 2% of the annual turnover of the aggregator, and the government will notify the exact percentage. And even here, it says that even this there is a further cap that the contribution can't exceed 5% of the amount that the aggregator needs to pay that gig worker or platform worker. So there are certain limitations on the amount of contribution that could be expected from the aggregator. And it sets out a, an indicative list of the categories of aggregators it is thinking of, which gives you an indication of how the government is looking at it. But at the end of the day, what's important to remember is all of this is still discretionary and it will be, it'll be based on what the government ultimately notifies as a scheme for the benefit of gig workers and uh, platform workers. And that will give us more clarity in terms of the exact role that, you know, aggregators will play in those specific schemes.
0: Right. And one kind of overall question, um, as, we, as we kind of close this discussion on the social security code, uh, one kind of overall question that's looming over this, I suppose, is which are the types of workers who are still not covered under, under this code and um, how can that be addressed?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, so, like I said, there is um, the, so let's look at the social security code. It's replacing essentially nine laws. These nine laws, out of these nine laws, eight laws are more or less for the organized sector. One law for the unorganized sector. That one law for the unorganized sector is the one under which you have various schemes, including the recent PM schemes for, you know, uh, unorganized workers, if you recall from the last couple of years. Now, what happens is that, um, as you know, you know, more than 90% of your uh, workforce is in the informal sector. So one of the questions that's been raised over time is, how do we move towards expanding or universalizing coverage from this, this limited seven percent of the organized sector to cover this 90% plus of the informal sector? Now, here the standing committee had said that, you know, we need to think about having Uh, universal social security that has defined mandatory schemes for informal sector workers, which will be achieved within a specified time frame. And one of the questions that remains in the new social security code is, is that something that, you know, this code is looking to set up? Because the way that the social security code is currently framed, it does not put in that kind of a universal framework for achieving social security coverage for the last worker. And it continues with this divide of mandatory schemes for some and discretionary schemes that the government will notify for others, like your informal sector workers and your gig and platform economy workers. So that divide continues and therefore the coverage more or less continues to be on the lines of what exists even under current laws, which is that if you're an establishment with at least 10 workers, then you will uh, you know start uh, giving ESI benefits. Even within that, if you're an employee who earns within a certain wage threshold, then you will be entitled to the benefit. So those issues continue. And one more small thing that's worth pointing out is that there is also a fair amount of conversation about the complexity of the delivery architecture when it comes to social security. Because your social security framework has your EPFO, your ESI, the state government is delivering the compensation benefits. So it's a fairly complex network of social security organizations that are administering all these benefits. And one of the recommendations has been that if you have... A more streamlined, uh, you know, singular body that can help administer all these benefits that will also, in a way, help in ensuring registration of workers, uh, you know, on a more universal scale and help in ensuring that there are less leakages of benefits and more number of workers get access.
0: Right. And, you know, one point that I kind of missed uh, missed out on when we were talking about the industrial relations code, I'm sorry, I'm proceeding a little bit piecemeal here as I'm kind of covering various concerns. Um, uh, but you mentioned it at the start, and I should have picked up on it earlier, is trade unions. So um, w- what, does the, what does the code say about the negotiating power of trade unions? And does it have any provisions as, as relates to things like um, workers going on strike, for instance?
1: Okay, so one of the things that, uh, you know, this the new industrial relations code is changing is that it makes a provision to recognize a trade union. And of course, this comes from, uh, you know, longstanding demands that you need to recognize the trade union, which can formally negotiate with the management that has the support of uh, the workers in the establishment. Now, what the new code says is that you know, if you have one union in the establishment, of course, that that will be the sole union to formally negotiate. In case there is more than one, and that which you know typically does tend to be the case that there are multiple trade unions. So, in case there is more than one, then the union which has the support of the majority, basically fifty-one percent of workers, that will be the negotiation agent. Now, what happens in case no union has 51% support, then the uh, code is basically saying that you can have a negotiation council of sorts, which will basically be, it will consist of representatives of unions that have at least 20% of the support of members of workers. Now, one quick question here to think about is that, you know, so think of a situation where you have multiple trade unions, so you don't have a single union, then you don't have a, you know, single union with 51% support then you can't form a negotiation college perhaps because you know not a single trade union has at least 20% support and one can think that of a situation where there could be multiple trade unions each of which just have the minimum registration requirement of 10% support 15% support so one question is you know what happens in those situations where a trade union may not even have this 20% support so that's one question the other aspect is that uh, you know uh, in terms of strikes like you asked Today, there's no requirement of a prior notice for strikes unless you're a public utility service. So, you're providing some kind of an essential service. Now, what this new law does is to say that you have to provide a two week notice, regardless of what type of an establishment you are. So, all establishments have to give this two week notice. Now, the complication with that is, is the fact that, you know, when it comes to, um, as soon as I want to give a notice of a strike, I need to immediately give it to a conciliation officer as well. Now once I give that notice to a conciliation officer, the conciliation process starts. Now until that whole conciliation process gets over, I can't strike under the code. So what effectively this notice period for strike does is to actually impact the ability of an establishment to strike on the, on the date that is given in the notice, because you know the conciliation process or the uh, dispute resolution process after that may become fairly long and drawn out. So that's another aspect to be kept in mind. And here the Standing Committee had also recommended that, you know, when you're looking at uh, the ability of strike, it's uh, it's core to the collective bargaining rights of any union. And to preserve that, the Standing Committee had said that you should limit the notice requirement uh, to public utility services and not extend it to all establishments.
0: So we covered this at one point earlier, but I want to touch on a more overall way on this uh, this question of delegated legislation. So it seems like the codes leave several key aspects um, uh, across things like social security schemes, health and safety standards. It leaves these to rulemaking. And so the question now becomes whether these should be determined by the legislature or delegated to the government in many cases. So what is the kind of proportion of that? What are the areas of concern here? Sure.
1: One thing uh, to note is that while you know this, these laws... To a large extent consolidate a lot of provisions, they also leave a fair amount to uh, decision making by the government. So, for example, in the safety code, the safety standards that have to be notified, the specific welfare facilities that have to be provided, the specific working conditions that need to be there is all left to rulemaking. Similarly, when it comes to, you know, what will be the uh, the thresholds for retrenchment, like we discussed, that can be modified by the government, right? When it comes to social security entitlements as well, um, the decision of you know whether uh, the mandatory coverage needs to be given to an establishment that is less than ten workers or not, again, it's left to the government to modify that threshold, that size-based threshold. So there's some fairly important questions here that have been left to the government and perhaps not left to the legislature to decide. And that's one. That's again one aspect that you know has to be uh, borne in mind while thinking about. What we want, you know, parliament or legislature in its wisdom to decide and what we are okay with the government taking a call on. And finally, when it comes to, you know, one overarching theme across this codes is of exemptions. So if you look at the industrial relations code and, you know, this safety code, both of these codes give um, certain broad powers to the government to exempt any new industrial establishment from its provisions. For different reasons. So for industrial relations, it says that in public interest, you can exempt any industry. The Occupational Safety Code says that, you know, uh, it can exempt uh, the provisions of the law if it is in the interest of creating more economic activity and employment. So this, what this means is that central and state governments have wide powers in providing exemptions, right? So every factory potentially that generates employment and public interest could be interpreted broadly and therefore be given an exemption potentially under this law. And these exemptions could cover a wide range of provisions. You know, these include the work hours, safety standards, retrenchment processes, collective bargaining rights, how much contract labor to employ. So all of these are, uh, you know, broad exemption powers that can now be exercised by the government to exempt factories or establishments from the provisions of these labor laws. So that's one more aspect to be borne in mind.
0: Right. So, Roshni, we've covered uh, many aspects in that that discussion. And perhaps just to conclude, we can um, just just do a kind of a broad strokes um, conclusion on basically what are these codes changing?
1: Sure. So, you know, um, just to sum it up, what these codes basically do is to rationalize to a large extent the definitions of these commonly used labor terms across, uh, you know, various laws like wages and workers and employers and establishments. That's one aspect. On the other hand, it's also uh, increasing the quantum of penalties that apply for various offenses while also allowing for compounding, which basically means that you can, you know, uh, you have an in-house mechanism where you can settle some fines and not necessarily have to go through a, uh, you know, prosecution system to settle it. Um, some of the other things that we've discussed in the course of our discussion, of course, is as far as your industrial relations code is concerned, the thresholds for closures or layoffs or retrenchments have been increased from 100 to 300 with the power left to the government to only increase it further. Similar is the case with standing orders that have to be notified by establishments. Um, this, uh, The Industrial Relations Code is also formally giving recognition to trade unions, but simultaneously it's um, somewhere constraining the right to strike by requiring a two-week heads-up or notice period before an establishment can go on strike. As far as the social security laws are concerned, it's trying to uh, look at future uh, forms of work. So it looks at gig workers and platform workers and tries to establish or define the role of aggregators to some extent. And, uh, you know, has provisions which create uh, funds and social security, uh, discretionary social security entitlements, entitlements for unorganized sector workers. Um, and it provides for registration across the board for all types of workers, including formal sector workers, unorganized sector workers, gig workers, and platform workers. Um, when it comes to the occupational safety code, it tries to uh, create one reg- a single registration platform for all establishments that hire at least ten workers. And if there are hazardous establishments, you know that are smaller than ten, even those could be included. But it continues to retain special provisions for factories, which apply, you know, if a factory has 20 or 40 employees, special provisions for contract labor, if the number of contract labor is 50 or more, special provisions for, you know, construction workers, special provisions for beer and cigar workers. So it continues to retain special provisions for special categories of workers um, and vulnerable categories of workers in some cases like migrant workers. Um, and yeah, and finally, the code on wages, which has already been passed is making, you know, provisions for creating a floor wage uh, across the country, and different states will dif- uh, notify different levels of minimum wages. So that's essentially what the four labor codes are doing. Um, with the one addition that you know, when you're looking at contract labor, the one thing it's trying to do is also define the um, the kind of work for which contract labor can be hired. By specifying that they can only be hired for core activities of the firm and, uh, you know, sorry, they can only be uh, hired for non-core activities of the firm. They cannot be hired for core activities of the firm. And what is a core activity? Something that the government will again decide. But even in core work, supposing there is a, you know, sporadic demand in production, uh, you know, there's a large government order or something that requires uh, short-term employment of labor, then perhaps, uh, you know, this code gives that flexibility to employ contract labor even in core activities if there is a sudden increase in work demand. So, those are some of the key changes across these labor laws.
0: Roshni, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. In we will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher,